This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. This is a woman who is prepared and has been trained to be impartial, to be fair, to be thoughtful, to administer the rule of law, not just simply become part of a political apparatus. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Elizabeth, we're so excited to have you join us today. This is just such a thrill for me personally to have this chance to talk with you and have all of our listeners out there hear your remarkable story and be inspired by you the way I have had the privilege of being inspired by you for so many years, going back to when you and I first met when I was a young attorney back in 1989 in the Office of General Counsel at the Central Intelligence Agency, and you were the general counsel. And you have been a role model for me from that day forward. And I remember that you introduced me to the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security, which you chaired. And then you recommended me to take over as the chair when you left. And that was an amazing experience. And we've had the wonderful opportunity to work together so many times over the years. And most recently, you have been such a tremendous contributor to our Defending Democratic Institutions project as a key consultant for us, as we have looked at information operations undermining democracy and how we can counter that in large part by reinvigorating civics. So we're going to talk about all of that today. And I'm so grateful that you've made the time to join us. I want to start by talking about your remarkable career. I've always thought it was fascinating that you began your legal career practicing civil rights law with the NAACP and then wound up serving in the intelligence community as general counsel for CIA and at NSA and deputy legal advisor at the State Department, and then went on from there to leadership in academia as the general counsel for the University of Wisconsin system, and then leading the Pacific McGeorge School of Law as the dean and serving as head of the California Bar. And I know that you continue to be incredibly active today with the National Academy of Sciences and and so many other things that you're doing. So really a fascinating career. And I want to talk about that. And let's start with your decision to go to law school. What initially interested you in practice of law or going to law school? Well, I have to thank you first for that remarkably generous introduction, Suzanne. I'm afraid I'm not going to start on a very inspirational note, however, because my decision to go to law school was an accident. One afternoon, I bumped into a friend, a man I hadn't seen for a while, and he was carrying a whole armload of books. I said, what are you doing, Larry? What are all those? He said, I'm in law school. You ought to try it, too. And I thought, well, okay, how do I do that? And he gave me a couple of rudimentary instructions. At the time, I was scratching my head as to what I would do after college. I didn't want to go on and get an advanced degree in philosophy, which had been my major. And it seemed that 
The other women of my generation were becoming nurses, school teachers, publishers, assistants, or housewives. And I was certain a housewife was not in my future. And the other three didn't sound very attractive. So I thought, okay, we'll try that. So I got into law school. And then, of course, I had to have a cover story. So when I was asked, I would say, well, yeah, I came to law school because I plan to change the world. And later on, when I became the dean of a law school, I used to tell a story to my students and say, in fact, I was right. I did change the world, except the world I changed was really mine. This is a case, I think, of smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. Well, you have changed the world in more ways than just in your own life. You have had a significant impact, both in the places that you've worked in and in being a thought leader in the national security world, including bringing national security law to law schools. You were an instrumental part of that effort. And people don't realize that when you and I were in law school, there really wasn't a national security law field, let alone folks teaching it in law school. It was referred to as an oxymoron intelligence law or national (laughs) security law. Exactly. So we'll come to that. But, you you know, you've talked about the fact that most of your women peers were not pursuing those kinds of careers going to law school. And I wonder if you can reflect a little bit more on that and, and maybe even some of the ways in which your being a woman did seem to make a difference as you went on in your career. Well, in fact, in my class at the University of Michigan, 350, only eight of us were women. And this was during the Vietnam War. And we were all under, I think, suspicion. And I remember a male classmate said to me on day two, are you here for the same reason all the other girls are? And I looked at him kind of blankly, said, what's that? He said, well, obviously to get a husband. I was hugely offended, need I say. (laughs) And The fact of the matter is, however, I did get a husband out of law school. It turned out to be someone I met when I spent my first summer doing civil rights work in the Deep South. And that was really an amazing experience. And I managed to pursue that for about five years. And I learned a great deal from that experience. One thing that happened, a tragedy, my husband died when he was 29 in a freak auto accident. And For reasons I really can't explain, I marched forward and said, I'm taking over your cases. He had about 100 active federal civil rights cases at the time. And that was a baptism by fire because all of a sudden I was in court virtually every other day, one of only a very few women who were in federal court. And over a number of years, I finally, I think, lost my fear of standing up and speaking. But like so many young and not so young lawyers, every argument I made, I kind of got sick to my stomach first. (laughs) But it was a it was an interesting time. I do think that spending time in the Deep South as a northerner was a cultural awakening for me. I had to learn about a very different time and place. And I think one real advantage or benefit I gained was in making some mistakes and then learning from them. And one mistake had to do with a man named Warren Fortson, who appeared almost by accident or magic on the other side of the Atlanta school desegregation case. And he sounded like a very racist Southerner. It later, I learned, turned out that Warren Fortson was a hero. And I, from that experience, realized that you can't judge a book by its cover. The fact that he might have sounded like others who were very racist at the time did not necessarily mean that that reflected his beliefs. 
And indeed, he had been a courageous leader in America's Georgia, where he lived, trying to help with desegregation and lost really his law practice. His fa- It was really a, a tragic story. So having experienced that bias on my own part, I think helped me when later on I got into, again, quite by accident, the national security setting where I had to revamp, revise some of the views that I held about the lawyers I'd be working with, my own ability, and frankly, the military lawyers that I was going to be working with. I thought that the military was a junk item. This was all, of course, a view formed because I had done some draft resistance work in the early 70s. And so I I really was quite surprised, kind of rocked back on my heels when I realized that the lawyers in my office at NSA were doing a better job than I would have in protecting the rights of Americans, and that among the best of those lawyers were JAG lawyers. And fortunately, before I embarrassed myself too much, I began to watch and learn what my own biases were. That's an invaluable lesson to realize that uh, get a little humility in just how knowledgeable you may be about things that you think you've mastered. Well, so many important lessons and sources of inspiration, Elizabeth, in the story that you've just shared with us. I think being open and honest about how you had to overcome your fear for such a long time and getting up and speaking, I think these are really important things. By now you are, and certainly when I met you, you were such a comfortable and accomplished speaker important to know that it it wasn't always like that and you overcome it, right? The obstacles that you overcame. And and I know that when your husband passed away, you were a single mother. You had a daughter. And so you took on this caseload and you have had this amazing career while raising an amazing and wonderful daughter. So just some really, you know, important things, I think, as sources of inspiration, certainly for me and for those listening. But it is a fascinating place to be a lawyer, isn't it? The intelligence community. I remember when you were the general counsel at CIA, that was during a time of very significant technological change. You know, the whole internet and the implications of that, both in terms of opportunity and challenge for the intelligence community. And then as the lawyer trying to figure out how to apply laws that were written pre-internet to the internet age, the dramatic changes in the world and the geopolitical situation. I mean, and those were days when there was really very little black letter law, right, around intelligence. The compendium of intelligence law is now incredibly thick. They had to go to two volumes, but it used to be very thin. And so it really called on all your skill as a lawyer, right, to find the most analogous laws and situations and extrapolate to to try to keep your client, you know, on the right side of the Constitution and the law. And I remember you giving me such great advice about how to make sure that as a lawyer trying to serve folks in the CIA, that they would come to me with problems at an early stage. And I remember you telling me, you know, if the answer is no, you have to say no. They can't do it the way they want to do it. But go beyond that and say, what is it you're trying to achieve Let's see if we can work together to find a way within the Constitution, within the law, to achieve the objectives. And and it was very smart advice, really terrific. It was a different lawyering, I should say, challenge between NSA and and CIA, I think, because the CIA has a, a broader remit and NSA has a heavily internally regulated set of structures. It's not public law. There are classified regulatory frameworks that really do control a great deal of it. And so it did 
it did have a different feel at the CIA. I will say, Suzanne, that one of the real pleasures at the CIA was the way in which one could manage one's office. You weren't as restricted in terms of the number of spaces that you had available. You could kind of be entrepreneurial. And one thing I liked to do was to say, so I had a budget I could play with, if you will. And I would say to some of the clients, if you, if you want to use that word, I think you probably would benefit from having a lawyer sitting next to you and actually helping you with your decisions as you, as it were, drive along the road here. And here's what I'll do. I'll give you somebody for six months out of my budget. And if you think I'm right after that six months, then you will pay for that person. And I never lost one of those little bets. Now, you are a classic, however, because one of the other things I learned actually when I was at NSA was that some of the most talented young lawyers were women. And you had to figure out, particularly those who were still in their child rearing period, how to persuade them to join you or perhaps to give you even more support than what they intended. At NSA, a young woman came by interviewing and I looked at her resume and I thought, my goodness, this is a real talent. How can I compete, however, against other places where she's interviewing? So I said to her, totally inappropriate, I'm certain any HR director would say, um, you have three children. They're very important. You probably won't have more than three children. But I said, you're going to have a lot of jobs. Have you ever thought about working half time? And she looked at me and you could just see kind of the scales fell off her eyes. And she said, oh, yeah. Every time I've been out at NSA, she comes up to me and says, gosh, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have come to NSA. And of course, she's been full time now for many years. So that was fun. Now, then I had an opportunity to staff something, a new center being created, a nonproliferation center. And I knew I had one young lawyer, very talented, a woman who was passionate about that. And I thought, now she's working part time, but if I can get her into this position, which I think should be created, I'll bet I'll get a full time effort. Her name was Suzanne Spaulding. <laughs> And you were great, Elizabeth, because as I recall, when you let the senior lawyers working, you know, closest to you know that you had decided that I would be the lawyer designated to this new nonproliferation center, a number of them said, you, you know, Suzanne can't do that. You can't do that. She's part time. You know, that that just won't work. And you said, I believe Suzanne can do this which was just wonderful. You know, thinking of your story of Anne Cara Christie being your advocate, and uh, you were certainly an advocate for me. And I think it's really important that women stand up for other women. So thank you for that. Another lesson that you taught me. Elizabeth, you know, you and I have had the joy of working together for the last few years, as I said, on this Defending Democratic Institutions project and your insights into the challenges that we face as a result of the lack of civic education for so many decades and, and why it's so important for national security. And we've done a lot of work, especially with the justice system coming out of the research and analysis that we've done on the Russian ways in which Russian, particularly Putin's information operations, have targeted public trust and confidence in our justice system. And of course, playing on vulnerabilities and weaknesses of our own making and drawing on legitimate grievances about flaws in our justice system, but portraying it as irrevocably broken rather than flawed and needing reform. 
I've been thinking about this as we've watched this historic moment with the confirmation of soon-to-be Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. And I wonder if you could share your thoughts on the importance of this moment and, and then what it might mean for the public's trust of the Supreme Court. Well, I suppose I have to answer the question, Suzanne, by reviewing a little bit of history, because for me, watching process, the confirmation process, which I would agree with Senator Collins is clearly broken, was a great disappointment that a woman of this obvious ability, unquestioned ability of, of competence, clearly ready for this position, and importantly, bringing remarkably valuable life experience, not just as an African-American woman, but as a public defender, somebody who has been on the Sentencing Commission. This is a perspective incredibly valuable and too little present in our judiciary. But by way of a little bit of history, my own understanding and appreciation of the judiciary really goes back to that time when I was in the Deep South. And at the time, the Fifth Circuit was a remarkable federal bench of just courageous giants, men like John Minor Wisdom, Albert Tuttle, John Brown. It went on. It was an honor to be involved with them, to appear before them. The, the kinds of changes that they were able to, I should say, not so much implement, but protect. They really were a remarkable and thoughtful group. Then flash forward to my time many years later, when I am now in California, and suddenly I look backwards and I kind of look around me and I begin to get the sense that not everybody understands or has that appreciation. And I think this realization first arose in my mind when the then Chief Justice Ron Brown invited 90 people, some from law schools, others lawyers, to be part of an impartial commission for an impartial judiciary. And the first meeting, he made a comment that has stuck with me. He said, you may wonder why we are calling this an impartial judiciary. He explained that a survey had shown that most public largely did not understand what an independent judiciary was. They thought it was a runaway judiciary, not that it was part of a separate branch. Well, if it needed more to hammer in that problem and that, that fact, his successor, Justice Tani Kantil Sakaui, a remarkable woman, once shared with me that in appearing before the state legislature early in her tenure, one of the legislators had asked her what department she was with. He had no notion that the judicial branch was separate. And in fact, and now looking at California, but this is true, I later learned across the country, we had so few lawyers serving in the legislature that we couldn't staff the Judiciary Committee with lawyers. There was a really falling off of the knowledge, the awareness, and the understanding of our system of government, our democratic system and structures. And the more I became aware of that, more concerned I became because while I was the dean of a law school for almost a decade, I used to say to my students, you know, the strength of this nation is in its diversity, this remarkable diversity, but we need to knit it together with a special glue, a cultural glue. And that's what we have from our rule of law traditions, the constitutional structure that we exist in. And you are the protectors of that, I would say to them. Well, it was a nice thought. 
But it turned out, the more I looked around and the more I learned, that indeed we weren't doing the job of keeping that knowledge fresh and alive among our citizens, and that we were putting ourselves in a very vulnerable position, and Putin and his hench people have figured it out. And so, yes, they target judiciary. They target any potential differences as a way to try and divide and create anger and create groups that are unable to work well together. Now, of course, in doing so, they're also busy targeting the most important pillars of our democracy, so voting. And as you quickly pointed out, voting is another one of those entities that requires trust and confidence that it's being properly managed and fairly handled, just like the judiciary does. And so if our judicial systems are as vulnerable as our voting systems are, I'd say we're in a great deal of danger. It was quite an amazing thing in my view, and I'll come to our newest justice in a minute, to see that I think it was, I'm going to get the number wrong, was it 80 courts considered whether there'd been any problem with the last election, and they all found no facts to support that. And it didn't matter whether they were political appointees by the Republicans or the Democrats. They were all operating under traditional rule of law approaches. So here she is, we see her, and the message I'd like to have people take from the remarkable testimony she delivered is that this is a woman who is prepared and has been trained to be impartial, to be fair, to be thoughtful, to administer the rule of law, not just simply become part of a political apparatus. Let's hope that's the message that comes across, but I worry that the grandstanding and the behavior of the senators may overwhelm that message. We'll see. I think that when she's on the court, which of course won't happen until next fall, people are going to be surprised at what a thoughtful, independent, and apolitical presence she is. That reminds me that I was always struck by Justice Powell who had a remarkable career before joining the court. He never voted after he joined the court. And he didn't vote because he thought he should maintain his independence and his fairness to both parties in that, by doing so, by, by in other words, removing himself from the political process. Now, maybe everybody doesn't have to go to that length. I think it's, a, it's an interesting vignette as to how important justices themselves if they are the justices we want, recognize the importance of an independent position and not being politicized. Again, I think it's worrisome because Congress seems to be doing its best to politicize the process. Yeah, and such important insights, Elizabeth, that the challenge for restoring and sustaining public trust in our justice system is one that falls both to the institution itself to the judges to make sure that they are, you know, living up to our aspirations, that they are clearly explaining their decisions, et cetera, to the members of Congress who are such an integral part of that confirmation process to understand the greater harm that they do in really politicizing that process in a way that undermines public trust and confidence and in the American public in their obligation, right, to understand the process and to be engaged and to hold 
our institutions accountable. You're absolutely right. You know, when you talk about the 60 courts that ruled against the challenges that were alleging wide-scale fraud in the election, and we saw, I believe, on January 6th, a consequence of efforts and rhetoric that undermine public trust in the legitimacy of the courts and, and therefore of those kinds of decisions. Those people who stormed the Capitol did not accord legitimacy to those 60 courts, those judges in those 60 plus decisions. So critically important in your voice as a national security, someone who spent so much of their career in the national security field as a national security expert to help us tell the story of why civic education is a national security imperative has been really, really profound. I want to close by asking, Elizabeth, you've been my mentor, as I've said, throughout my career. And I'm wondering what advice you have for others out there who are either looking for a good mentor or trying to be a good mentor. Well, that's an interesting question, Suzanne. I've thought about that. There's been much said and written about mentors and so on. And for many years, I thought, well, I don't really have a mentor. Well, it was because I think I misunderstood the concept. It isn't that you have someone who you follow around, like, if you will, a puppy, who then hands you this, that, and the other. It's a whole series of people who, over the, over your career, encourage and support you, help you to find your way to find your own voice. And at different times, it will be different people. And so I mentioned Dan Schwartz, who was a wonderfully supportive presence in my early career, but retains that role even today. I know I can always drop a note to Dan and get good advice, but there were others along the way too that I learned from. And so I think we have to be open to saying it isn't that you are looking for one person, it's that you're looking for a series of relationships that can be supportive. So I think that there are different ways of interpreting the word mentor. Now, as for the person who may be in a position to help, I've always felt that one of my obligations as a lawyer, now a senior lawyer, is to support others in whatever it is they're trying to do. So one of the tedious features here is to write letters of recommendation, but I see that as a very, very important task. In fact, I just recently did that for one of my former law school colleagues. It was a long task to support or recommend her for a particularly important membership in an organization. In other cases, you can open a door. We talked about how Anne Caracristi opened a door for me. I hope I opened one for you. I remember back to the CIA that I had the chance to kind of look at people and assess what they could do and then suggest moves that oftentimes they didn't even understand or value themselves. And I'll share one little story here. At the CIA, there was one very talented lawyer, Ed Cohen, and Ed was extremely good at what he did, but he had become something, I thought, of a gerbil in a cage. He was just running, running, running and driving everybody nuts. He'd run out of challenges. And so I proposed a move for him that would take him out of the office and give him really quite a management opportunity. It took his wife a year to speak to me. She thought I had fired him. Finally, after a year, she said, I now see what you were trying to do. You've given him a whole new opportunity. In another case, I referred somebody to a position that he didn't think was the right thing for him. It was going to be the legislative affairs position. And later he said, you know, this was really an opportunity I really have learned. Thank you. So I think sometimes you have to stand back, look at where a person is in their career, and then sometimes just give them a little nudge. 
and hopefully you've nudged them in the right direction and all will be well. But we do have a tendency, I think, to continue to do what seems comfortable. And it can sometimes be important to have someone on the outside say, you know, you could do something even more than what you're doing. And that certainly has been what has pushed me from time to time. I'll end by saying that I would have stayed at NSA probably for the rest of my career. But one day, a friend said to me, are you going to die in that position? (laughs) I said, well, I just don't know what else I would want to do. I just can't. He said, think harder. And I said, well, maybe I would like to be the principal deputy at the State Department, totally without any knowledge that this, his name was Bob Kimmett, had any way of offering me that position. Three months later, I had a call. If you'd still like to be the principal deputy, the position's yours. So again, he pushed me. But for that, I might never have even thought about that as an idea. So again, it's an interesting thing being a mentor. It's not what I thought as a young person. It's rather a much more flexible, fluid thing as we go along, encouraging and supporting, not necessarily directing, but every once in a while, finding a place where you can do just a little bit of a push and see what happens. Well, Elizabeth, I have been an incredibly fortunate beneficiary of your wise mentoring, including the little bit of a push in taking over that ABA standing committee, which I would never have thought of, thought I was ready for, and turned out to be an incredibly formative and important part of my career. And I would just conclude by saying to our listeners that I can only hope that each of you is as fortunate to find someone to be an inspiration and a mentor and a guide for you as I have been with Elizabeth Rinskoff-Parker. And Elizabeth, just thank you so much for all that you've done for me and for our country, but also for making time to speak with us today and sharing your amazing story and wisdom with our listeners. So thank you you so much. You know, Suzanne, I just have to say that sometimes those you think of as your little chicks grow up to be eagles and you are an eagle. So thank you. you kind. (laughs) Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.